0: Amen. <clears throat> can, can everybody hear me okay? Got this lapel mic. I don't know if we had it turned up enough or not. Um, before we begin, I just want to say I, I wish Brian was here. I think they're out of town this morning uh, visiting with, I believe, with Kate, Caitlin's father who just went through some heart surgery. So they're with them in South Carolina, I believe. But I really appreciate Brian leading us through the first half of the Harmony of the Gospels in the last quarter. Brian always, well, he's he's a talented teacher, and you don't need me to tell you that. You know that he is because you've heard him teach before. But I'll I'll have to say this. uh, Brian's brain runs in high gear. Mine runs in about second gear, okay? And sometimes jumps out of gear. So, so bear with me, and uh, with your help, I think we can, we can have a good good study. I just want to remind you once again, we invite your comments. I know I look out here, and I see probably 500-plus years of Bible studies sitting out here. <laughs> and so I know there's a lot of Bible knowledge out here, and, and I know that I'm not going to say everything that needs to be said in these lessons. So I invite you, if you have comments, to to speak up and share your knowledge with, with the rest of us. Just uh, raise your hand, and Michael will get a, a microphone to you so that all of us can hear. If you don't have a mic, then about half of us won't hear you, and those listening in via the FM or the live stream won't hear you either. So be sure and, and wait for the mic and and uh, make your comments. So we look forward to that. Okay, with the, the harmony of the Gospels. Uh, Some people have called this the greatest story ever told. I believe that's true. Uh, It's the greatest story ever told because it's the most important story ever told. Uh, It's part of God's plan of salvation. Uh, We know that it was in God's mind before the foundations of the world even. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit before we actually get into uh, Luke chapter 14, kind of maybe refocus our minds just a little bit about what it is we're studying and why these things are happening, just a few thoughts about that. Um, When I say story, I say that not in the sense of something made up, but of course it's relating historical events that actually happened, and that's what we're talking about, and it's it's important because it is part of, part of God's plan. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is not all of God's plan of salvation, but it is an integral part of it and a most important part of it. Without what happens in these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the rest of the plan would be futile, wouldn't it? So uh, God's plan of salvation, and it was in his mind before the foundation of the world. You've read these verses before. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 tells us that writing to Christians he said that God has chosen us in him that is in Christ before the foundations of the world. Second Timothy 1 in verse 9 he says he has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So these things were in God's mind before he even created man. And I like Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. This is the first gospel sermon after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And in that sermon in in, uh, verse 23, Peter said, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So he says these things were not an accident. This was predetermined and foreknown by God that that these things were going to happen. And so since this was all according to God's plan, then of course we're not surprised then that God is in control of all of these things. In Galatians 4 and verse 4 it says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We'll talk about that a little bit, a little later on, born under the law. But he said, in the fullness of time. Now, I take that to mean that that God determined a certain time that this would happen. And when that time arrived or that time was fulfilled, then it happened just like God planned it. Now, why did he choose that particular time? Well, we probably don't know anywhere near all the answer to that. Uh, I think Brian talked about it a little bit. It could be because under the Roman Empire, there was pretty much a common language throughout the then known world to make it easier to preach. Uh, there were good roads and you could travel by ship and you could, you could travel around pretty easily relatively speaking, we would, today we'd say it's pretty difficult the way they traveled, but for that time it was a pretty good way to travel and lots of other reasons, I'm sure, that, that God chose that particular time. But not only did he choose the time that Jesus would be born, but we see in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 it says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, uh, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, it reminds me of John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. This is what Jesus said about his death. He said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. So Jesus is saying that no one is going to take my life. But when he would die, it would be in a, in a time and a place of his choosing, not man's choosing. So we see uh, God's control over all of, all of these events. And you remember even just in uh, last week's lesson, Brian was talking to us from uh, Luke chapters 12 and 13 and John chapter 10, there was an occasion there that the Jews attempted to capture Jesus I don't know if they were going to throw him in jail or kill him or what their intentions were, but it wasn't good. But it says that Jesus eluded their grasp. And, and it's probably been at, at least four or five times in our first half of this study we've seen where that, uh, they wanted to kill Jesus or capture him or put him in prison or something, and he eluded them. And the way it's worded in some cases, it seemed like it was a miraculous escape. I know there was one occasion, I believe it was, was it in Nazareth where they wanted to throw him off a cliff and those kind of things, but but of course that didn't happen because it wasn't the right time yet, and and God was in control. And if you just think about it, when it did happen, when he was taken prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was at night, right? And Jesus knew they were coming, right? So how easy would it have been for him to escape if he had wanted to? We would say it's like falling off a log, right? (laughs) He could have easily escaped it, but now it was the right time, and so he let it happen. I don't know what all, as I said before, the right time included, what made it the right time. We could probably surmise some of those things, but uh, before his death, part of it was there were some things that he needed to accomplish on this earth before he died and would leave. And again, I, I don't know all of the things that he would have wanted to accomplish, but I think we can see some things. That were important for him to accomplish uh, before his death. Uh, number one is that he needed to fulfill some prophecies. Uh, why did he need to do that? What's What's the big deal about fulfilling these prophecies? God's truth uh, to uh, it's faith. It's evidence for faith, right? It's evidence. To, to prove he was who he claimed to be. If he's the Christ, then he would need to fulfill all of the prophecies concerning the Christ, right? If he missed just one, then he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be the Christ. And so he had to spend some time here on this earth uh, fulfilling these prophecies to prove that he was who he said he would be. Uh, you remember in Luke chapter 4, where he had gone into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he read from Isaiah chapter 61, and he said, these prophecies are fulfilled in your hearing this day. He sat back down. You remember that? He's saying, I am fulfilling prophecy. Why would he want to do that? To convince his people he was who he said that he was. In Acts chapter 2, the very first gospel sermon, Peter used prophecies, right? What he needed to do was to convince these people that this Jesus they had killed, this Jesus of Nazareth, he, he called him by name so there would be no doubt who, the, who he was talking about. This Jesus of Nazareth that you killed, he said, and then he began to uh, relate some of the prophecies of, of uh, David, King David, and show how that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Now, there were other evidences there, too, but that was part of the evidence that convinced this pe- these people that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Also, there was the miracles. What was the purpose of Jesus' miracles? Was he just out to... Uh, cure all the d- illnesses of the day. Was that his purpose in doing those? I'm just going to cure every illness. There will be no hospitals. Be no more illness because I'm going to cure everybody. Was that was that it? You may believe. No, yeah, that you may believe. And that's what John, the way he closed his book, wasn't it? I've written these things that you may believe. And again, that was part of what happened on the day of Pentecost as well. But um, I was reminded of What Jesus said in John chapter five, he was talking about the evidence that proved that he was who he claimed to be, and the first evidence was he remembers he said remember what John the Baptist said that was one piece of evidence. John had said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." You remember that, but in verse 36 he said, "But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John." For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, this, these very works that I do, they testify about me. In John chapter 7 in verse 31, it says, but there's many in a crowd believed him and were saying, when Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than which this man has, will he? So you see, they were believing in him, why? It was more than one reason, But one of the reasons was because of the signs that he performed proving he was who he said he was, proving that God was with him. In fact, if you remember in John chapter nine, when Jesus healed the man that was born blind and remember the Pharisees called him in and they were questioning about this and who was it that healed you and where did he come from and those kinds of things. And finally, after he'd been questioned several times over and over again, he just, this simple, honest, formerly blind man. He just said this, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see how simple that is? That's all people had to do of the day is look at Jesus' works, the things that he did. And it would prove that he was who he claimed to be. You couldn't be from, from God and performing these miracles and then be a liar, could you? You couldn't do that. God wouldn't be with you if you were a liar, and so part of what Jesus had to do before he gave his life at the right time was to provide evidence. And so here we are, two thousand years later, and that evidence is is still working, isn't it? He fulfilled every prophecy, and he performed those miracles to prove that he was who he said he was. He also needed. To take some time to prepare his apostles, you remember in Matthew chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, there uh, the apostles were having a very difficult time in in getting away from the physical things and applying things spiritually. And I, I don't want to be too hard on the apostles. If we'd been there, we'd have been in the same boat with them, I'm sure. But they were really struggling. Everything seemed to be physical. And, and Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And what do the apostles say? You remember? He said, oh, he's saying this because we forgot to go buy bread. <laughs> but that wasn't, that wasn't it at all. It was the teaching and the influence of the Pharisees. And just a little later in that same chapter, um, he was telling them his apostles about the things that he was going to have to suffer. Peter pulled him aside. What, what did Peter say to him? You remember? No, Lord, not going to let these things. No, 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 these things. And what did, what did Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. What does Satan mean? Okay. And adversary? Stumbling block. Stumbling block. I think the word literally means adversary too. And so that's, that's what Peter was being to Jesus here. And so we can see that uh, there was a lot of growing that the apostles needed to do, and that took time. And if we read closely, we'll begin to see some progress being made a little bit along. And of course, it, uh, it wasn't going to be all that needed to be really until the day of Pentecost and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we can see them growing in that direction As time went by, another thing that Jesus needed to do in his time here on earth before he would give his life is he had to prepare himself to be a great high priest, and really the perfect high priest, right? You remember in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Caesar, there's a really good reason for you to hold fast your confession. Every time I hear that, hold fast, I think about a a grip so tight. you got the white knuckles. You hear the white knuckle grip. That's the way we ought to hold on to our confession, right? Why? Because we have a great high priest, and he tells us what he does for us. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may have received mercy, find grace to help in the time of need. Why are we so sure that we can approach the throne of grace and have a high priest that can sympathize with us? It's because he experienced everything that we experience. He got tired like we get tired. He felt pain just like we feel pain. Uh, he, feel, he can feel sorrow. Uh, temptation disappointments discouragements everything that you've encountered in your life that's been difficult. guess who else experienced the very same thing and yet without sin and so Jesus needed some time on this earth to be able to prepare himself to be the kind of high priest that you and I need and we we think often about it and most often and rightfully so about his sacrifice uh, on the cross and what a great blessing that is and what uh, the free gift of God and we would be lost and hopeless without him but we ought to remember about what kind of high priest he is too and how thankful we ought to be that we have a great high priest but he also needed some time to prepare our hearts yours and mine. Back a few weeks ago, Brother Delk leading us in a study of Proverbs. You remember what Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What does that mean? You need to keep your heart with all diligence because everything that you think and say and do comes from the heart. Proverbs 23 and verse 7, a man thinks in his heart so is he. So we're told to keep a heart with all diligence, but how do you do that? See, there's the question. Okay, I understand I need to keep my heart with all diligence because my actions come from the heart. So how do I do that? Put good stuff in. in. Look at... uh, Uh, Luke chapter 6 verse 45. I'm going to read this from the New American Standard. It says the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. The New American Standard has a little footnote by the word the good treasure and it says treasury storehouse. So your mind is a storehouse. Now I don't know about you, but but I probably do know that if, however much closet space you've got in your house is filled with something. (laughs) If it's not now, it will be sooner or later. And so if you expect to get something good out of the closet, something useful, then you're going to have to put good things in the closet, right? If you fill it with junk, guess what you're going to get out of it? (laughs) You're just going to get, well, the heart is the same way. And so Jesus spent all that you think. In fact, we get into chapters 14 and 15, what we're going to see, six parables. So what's he doing? He's, he's, he's giving us good stuff to put in, in the heart, right? I always, it seems like I always work this verse into every lesson one way or another. Anybody remember what Deuteronomy 6 and verse 24 says about God's commandments? It says, therefore, you're good always. For you're good always. So that tells me anything we get from the Lord and put it in our storehouse is going to be good, and then you get good things that come from it. Micah 6 and verse 8 tells us this. What does God require of the old man but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And Jesus is going to teach the same thing. And In fact, we'll go ahead and turn over, turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 23. You, that's a famous chapter. You probably know in your mind already what that's all about. That's where he's a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees. In verse 23 he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill in coming, and have neglected weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Does that sound familiar? You've neglected the weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Isn't that exactly what Micah 6 and verse 8 said? Same thing. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Walking humbly with your God. And so those are the good things, some of the good things that Jesus is helping us to fill our hearts with in his time here on this earth. Just think what we would be missing if if he didn't have the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking the time to fill our hearts with good. So he's he's helping us to uh, prepare our, our hearts the way it should be so we get good things out of it. So let me ask you this. We saw earlier Jesus was born under the law, right? He lived his whole entire life up until he was crucified under the law. So all of these things he's teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, all these prophecies, all these parables, all of that was spoken while he lived under the law. And so some would tell you, since Jesus lived under the law, we're not subject to what he's He taught then. He was just expanding on the old law. And when he died on the cross and the old law was done away, then that did away with what Jesus taught as well. And so you don't have to pay attention to what Jesus taught because it was under the law. How would you answer that? Would you say, whoa, boy, I never thought about that? How do you answer that? Okay, let's go, we're going to go there. Look first at, at John chapter 14 and verse 26. Get over to my passage here. This is where that uh, Jesus was talking to His apostles and He told them He was going to have to go away, but He was going to send them the Holy Spirit. And says, the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom my Father was sending in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He says, I'm leaving. The Father's going to send the Holy Spirit, and here's what he's going to do for you. He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've taught you. Well, why did they need to know that? Passes, I believe, that Gerald just mentioned. Almost the last thing Jesus said to his apostles before he left he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And of course, Hebrews chapter 1, for a couple of verses there, says that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So yes, the things that Jesus spoke, that was part of preparing his apostles, right? <laughs> that we talked about earlier. So uh, those things are binding the things that Jesus taught while he was here on this earth because that's exactly what the apostles were to teach as well. Yes. Uh... You can also think about the Sermon on the Mount when he is uh, talking about what, the, what they believed, what the Jews' doctrine was. But then he went on to say, but I say unto you. So he was placing his law and his truth in, in contrast with what the Jews uh, believed. Right. So he would say, well, you say uh, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say love your enemies, right? And so all of those things were what he was preparing his apostles and, and preparing us as well. Um, to use today. Any any other comments there? What do we got? 20 minutes. This picture here shows you a little bit geographically about where you are. You remember last week when Brian was talking about that most of what happened in chapters uh, 12 and 13 of Luke Jesus was uh, in Perea, that is east of the Jordan River. Now he did take a quick trip over to Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication but then it said he went back up uh, on the Jordan River where John had been baptizing. So if you start at that top where it says Bethany across from Jordan (laughs) question mark, we don't know if he was at Bethany but he was somewhere in that area in Perea and our lesson this week and and in the next week, actually week after next, next week's the gospel meeting, he'll be traveling south. That far right red arrow there is where he'll be traveling down through Perea. And in the next lesson, he will cross back over the Jordan and go to Bethany. What's going to happen at Bethany? Lazarus. Raise Lazarus from the dead. And then he would go up to this city called Ephraim, which is near Bethel. And then up in the coast or the border of Samaria and Galilee, then back over into to Perea and spend a little more time there. And now he is finally directly on his last trip to Jerusalem. He would go down and cross the river to Jericho. What happened at Jericho? He would meet this short little man that climbed up in the tree, Zacchaeus, and then right on to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. So that's where we are. These things are taking place probably January or February of AD 30 the, he would be crucified uh, during the Passover and that was the, the March-April timeframe. so you can see we're only at the most a couple of months away from the time that Jesus would give his life so that's that's where we are uh, as far as time and, and place goes okay uh, Luke chapter 14 We've got 15 minutes. (laughs) Luke chapter 14. uh, He's in Perea. It says, And it happened when he came and went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. They were watching him closely. It seems that, uh, well, it says, And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And this was a disease that was very visible. When Jesus would come in and, and see this individual, he would know he was ill wouldn't be any, any question about that. So it seems like this, this is kind of a, a setup. If you remember last week in Luke chapter 11, where he had pronounced uh, woes on the Pharisees and the lawyers, and it kind of made them angry. They didn't like that. And it's uh, Luke 11:53 53, says, when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely with many subjects plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. And so here we are a little time later now, and guess what? They're, they're doing exactly that, aren't they? they they're, they're plotting against Jesus to try to catch him in something. So this was one of the leaders of the Pharisees has invited Jesus to come to his house and have this meal with them. And he comes in the door and there stands this man who is sick. And no doubt he was a planted there for this, this very reason. This was a plot. Verse 3 is interesting. It said, And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. What was he answering? There's no record that they had said anything. They hadn't said a word to him according to the record. But it said, Jesus answered. I take that to mean Jesus knew what was in their hearts, right? He knew what was going on here. And so he's answering their plot. And their thoughts. And he said, um, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. So you think about that, um, if they said, Why, yes, it's it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then that would ruin their scheme, wouldn't it? Could not say yes. Why didn't why didn't they just say, well, no, no, it's not, it's not lawful. You can't do that. Why did why did they just be quiet? Why didn't they say well, no? Jesus could simply say, show me the passage. Couldn't he? Just show me, show me the passage, if that's true, show me. And of course, they wouldn't be able to do that. And probably they had learned by now how many times the Pharisees had tried to trip up Jesus in manners like this, and they always came up on the short end of the stick every time, right? And this time, they were going to just keep quiet. <laughs> I'm not going to get embarrassed here again if I can help it. So they weren't going to answer one way or another. They're going to say yes, not going to say no. And so it says there in verse 4 that Jesus healed this man and sent him away. So that again, that kind of shows this, this man with the dropsy wasn't an invited guest. He was just planted there for this purpose of their schemes. And when he was healed, Jesus sent him away. And so then he just to kind of finish off the thought there, he asked them this. Which one of you, having a son or an ox fall into a well, will not immediately put him, uh, put him, pull him out on the Sabbath day? And of course, again, they had no reply because they knew what they would have done. They would have pulled their son or their ox out of the well if they had to to, to save it. So, I put up here four problems. This one, of course, the first and the main problem was that if Jesus could heal again, that would prove he was who he said he was, right? So. It, so that would tell me, you need to listen to him. <laughs> but rather than that, they tried to use it to, to trip him up there as he, as he healed on the Sabbath day. Uh, but they seemed to have had no compassion uh, for this sick man. They just used him, that was all. There, there, was, there was no compassion uh, at all. If you look back, of course, there were numerous times in the past, Jesus had done some things on the Sabbath that they tried to use against him. Back over in Mark chapter two, it's a little bit different situation. This was a time when his (coughs) disciples were passing through the grain fields. They didn't have anything to eat, so they picked heads of grain and ate it. Now, uh, Deuteronomy three and uh, 23, verse 25, the law specifically allowed for that to happen. I mean, you couldn't harvest it, but you could take what you needed to eat. And that's what they were doing. And the Pharisees had a problem with that because they were doing it on the Sabbath day. And Jesus reminded them of how David had eaten the showbread and so forth. But then he wound that up by saying there that in verse 27, he said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What does that mean? Says you're basically he's saying you're wrong in your in your uh, accusations because the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What he's saying, I think you correct me if I'm wrong, is that the Sabbath was intended to be for man's good, right? And with all your traditions and everything, you you've made it something that's bad. You know they were. They got ridiculous in trying to, to define within themselves what work is. You couldn't tie and untie knots, you couldn't write more than one letter of the alphabet, you couldn't pick up anything heavier than two dried figs and all that they made the the Sabbath nearly impossible. And so they were taking something that was intended to be good for man and making it at the very least difficult if 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 not impossible. In Matthew's account of that same event there where they were going through the grain fields, the way he closed that out is he quoted from Hosea 6 and verse 6, and he said, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. All right? So again, this is when the disciples needed something to eat, and they picked these heads of grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees complained about it because it was on the Sabbath, and Jesus said, you need to learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice." So does that, does that mean that, uh, you know, the law says to offer sacrifices, but I'm saying you don't need to offer sacrifices. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. I think the Bible is the best commentary on what he meant by that. Turn to Isaiah chapter one. There in verse 13, we're going to see what this means. In verse 13. God said, bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is an abomination to me. Uh, down in verse 15, I'm not going to listen to your prayers anymore. He says, your, your sacrifices are an abomination, and I don't want them anymore. Why was that? It's because they were living like the devil. <laughs> they thought they could offer a sacrifice, and that would cover everything, while they broke every law in the book. Look at verse 15. 16, here's what you ought to do. Well, verse 17 talks about their hands covered with blood. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from your sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove ruthlessness, defend the orphan, plead for the widows. And then you can bring your sacrifice. And I'll acknowledge that. But as long as you're living the way you're living, your sacrifice is worthless. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees here, uh, that uh, their sacrifices were worthless because they had no compassion for anybody. It was all the letter of law. Offer sacrifice, check. Tithe, check. You know, but justice, mercy, faithfulness, the weightier things of the law. You know, without that, then your your sacrifices, your tithes, are worthless. Any comments? I'm reminded of a couple of passages. One in Hosea six six, which uh, says, I, "For I delight in loyalty rather than in sacrifice." And then also, uh, when you think about First Samuel 15, verse 22, uh, what does the law, you know, Lord require? But you know, obedience versus sacrifice. To obey is better than to sacrifice. I believe that Hosea 6:6 6, 6 is where Jesus was quoting from there in, in uh, Matthew 12, and we'll we'll see it again here in in Luke. I forget if it's 14 or 15, but we'll see it again a little bit later. Same same thing. Okay, we got five minutes. Um, so they, they had no reply when he had healed the man and said is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath and would you go pull your ox out of the well on the Sabbath well yeah they wouldn't answer and so uh, verse 7 he began speaking a parable in, uh, to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking places of honor so apparently it was custom the Jews if you invited guests to your home and you had this big table here there were certain seats set aside for the most honorable And maybe some others down here, I guess, at the foot of the table for the less honorable. And so what was happening, when what Jesus saw when he went into this Pharisee's home, was everybody was pushing and shoving, trying to get the most honorable seat. It kind of reminds me of one time years ago, I went to one of these all-you-can-eat buffet things. And I went over to look at that buffet, and there was one little bucket that had fried chicken in it, and there was just one piece left. And there was about ten people pushing and shoving, trying to get that... One piece of fried chicken, and apparently that's what was happening here. I want the best seat in the house. So, what's the problem with that? What? Thinking of yourself more highly than. Okay, yeah, and, and which means pride, right? It's that old word, pride, and. Uh, uh, you know, you could, David and Leland could probably preach a whole week on pride and, and the opposite of humility. Anytime you talk about pride, you need to talk about humility, too. If pride is a bad thing, then what, what's the good thing? Well, that's, that's humility. So Jesus said, you know, what you should do is take the less honorable seat, and then, then if your host comes up and says, hey, move on up here to the honorable seat, then, then that would be good. But you showed some humility and you let your host show you honor rather than trying to grab it for yourself. Because if you come in and grab the most honorable seat then you say, whoa, you know, somebody come in most honorable, more honorable than you. Now you got to move down to a less honorable seat and be be kind of embarrassing. So but but more than just being embarrassing, uh, pride is a sinful thing, right? You remember in uh, Proverbs chapter six the seven things that God hates. What was number one on the list? He called it haughty eyes, but he's talking about pride, right? Why? Why is pride such a bad thing? You know, we think of sins like boy, murder, lying, you know, adultery. All those things are terrible, and they are. But pride, pride's a bad thing too. Why is it so bad? They're not teachable. Not teachable. That could, be, that could be part of it, absolutely. Somebody puffed up their pride. That's probably a big part of the Pharisees' problems, wasn't it? Pride, not going to listen to what you've got to say. Uh, what, what can pride do in a church? Can tear it all to pieces. Can tear it all to pieces. In my time on this earth... Uh, my experience what I've seen the the most trouble I've ever seen in a local congregation wasn't over doctrinal issues it was brethren just not getting along, and pride played a part in it what if we what if we applied Philippians 2 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ and all that he did for us what if we applied that I'm going to make sacrifices for my brother. That's my attitude every day. What if my attitude is, again, the same passage that I consider you more important than me? So if something comes up in here that's a matter of judgment, you're more important than me. Turn turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to have to close with this. You want to see what will fix about 99.999% of the problems that come up in a, in a local church. Such so here, as here's the answer. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now skip down to verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification. Everything I'm gonna say to you is gonna be what's good for edification. I think about it before I say it. Think about it before I say it. According to the need of the moment, that it may give grace, favor to those who hear. Everything I'm going to say to you, I'm going to say it for your good. That'll be a favor to you, okay? It's unmerited favor. I don't do it just because you did something good to me. I do it because it's the right thing to do. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus also has forgiven you. That'll fix just about any problem you'll ever find in the Lord's church. Now, I know sometimes are a doctrinal thing, and that needs to be handled and it needs to be handled properly but if we just do what Ephesians chapter 4 says they're not going to be any problems in this church we're going to love one another, we're going to put the Lord first in our lives, we're going to work together and it doesn't matter if I'm an elder or a preacher or a deacon or a class teacher or whatever, if the floor needs to be mopped I'm going to mop it if the grass needs to be mowed and I'm able to do it, then I'll mow it. You know, if pride doesn't enter, What? because it's all serving the Lord, right? We're serving each other, that's true. Somebody cleans this building, guess what? They're doing that for you. They're doing it for you. They're cleaning the building for you. But they're also, more importantly than ever, they're doing it for the God of heaven, right? And so, we behave ourselves like this, then this church is gonna grow and prosper, and we're gonna be what the good Lord wants us All right, that'll that'll be it. We didn't get through this, but uh, enjoyed the study with you. I hope it's been good for you. Next Lord's Day will be our gospel meeting. So a week, two weeks from today, we pick up in here in chapter 14 and 15 and get on with lesson number two. Thank you.